0: Welcome to the September 10th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will start by reviewing two studies on the risks of transmitting HIV from transfusion, The first study asks whether changing the U.S. blood donation policy for men who have sex with men from an indefinite deferral to a deferral of 12 months from last sex increases the risk of transfusion-transmitted HIV. The second study examines the frequency of detecting anti-HIV retroviral drugs in the serum of people attempting to donate blood. We will also review a manuscript examining the impact of MYC in HIV-associated non-Hodgkin lymphomas treated with EPOC chemotherapy, with or without virinostat. And lastly, we learn more about platelet hyperactivity in two recent studies of patients with COVID-19. Our first two studies are entitled HIV incidents in U.S. first-time blood donors and transfusion risk with a 12-month deferral for men who have sex with men by Edward Grieb and HIV antiretroviral therapy and prevention use in U.S. blood donors, a new blood safety concern by Brian Custer, both from the Vitalant Research Institute in San Francisco and their colleagues. Grebe et al. report the impact of changing U.S. blood donation policy for men who have sex with men, or MSM, from an indefinite deferral to a deferral of 12 months from last sex. From 1985 to 2015, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration recommend that blood collection organizations indefinitely defer male donors who have had sex with another male, even one time since 1977. Then, in December 2015, the FDA revised its guidance to recommend a limited-time deferral of MSM for 12 months since last sex, and in April 2020, recommended a further reduction in deferral period to three months since last sex. Reeb and colleagues call attention to the importance in monitoring the impact of these policy changes and their impact on donor eligibility to better understand HIV incidence in blood donors and on the risk of HIV transmission through blood transfusions. In order to assess this, the authors monitored donations made at four major blood collection organizations for 15 months before and two years after implementation of the 12 month MSM deferral policy. The samples and data were collected by the Transfusion Transmissible Infections Monitoring System set up by the NIH in 2015. During the study period, which was 2015 to 2018, 20% of all collections were from first-time donors, of which 48% were male. During the study period, 4.8 million donations from first-time donors were captured in the donor donation database of which 391 were later shown to be HIV positive. These HIV positive individuals were then classified as either recently acquired or long term using a recent infection testing algorithm. The HIV incidence in first-time donors before implementation of the 12-month MSM deferral was estimated to be 2.62 cases per 100,000 person-years, and after implementation was 2.85 cases per 100,000 person-years, which was not a statistically significant difference. Factors associated with incident infection were the same in each period. Overall. The researchers reported that implementation of the 12-month MSM deferral policy does not increase the incidence of detection of HIV in first-time male donors. In the future, it will be important to study even shorter deferral periods as well. In a companion paper, Custer and colleagues looked for evidence that U.S. donors were taking antiretroviral therapy, and what they found is of concern. They conducted three different analyses in potential blood donors to look for the presence of drugs commonly used to treat HIV or prevent HIV infection. They first tested blood samples from HIV positive and a comparison group of infection non-reactive donors in a blinded study using liquid chromatography tandem mass spectrometry for the retroviral drugs commonly used to treat HIV infection. Second, they tested blood donor samples from HIV negative 18 to 45-year-old males who were first-time donors in six U.S. locations for the presence of the PrEP drugs emtricitabine and tenofovir. Third, they assessed MSM participating in the 2017 CDC National HIV Behavioral Surveillance from five U.S. cities for self-reported PrEP use before attempted donation. They found that in blind testing, no antiretroviral drugs were detected in 300 HIV non-reactive donor samples. However, in 299 HIV-confirmed donor samples, 46 had evidence of anti-HIV drugs. Finally, of the 1,494 samples tested from first-time male donors, 9 had detectable serum levels of the PrEP drugs tenofovir and emtricitabine. The authors concluded that persons who are HIV-positive and taking antiretroviral therapies and persons taking PrEP to prevent HIV infection are in fact both attempting to donate blood. Both of these situations could lead to increased risk of HIV transfusion transmission if blood screening assays are unable to detect HIV in donations from infected donors. In an accompanying commentary, Richard Kaufman at the Brigham and Women's Hospital states that the observation that a non-trivial number of blood donors are taking antiretroviral drugs represents a safety gap in the blood collection system. He confirms, as the study authors note, that there is a need to further evaluate the risk of HIV transmission from donors and conduct additional studies to assess donor comprehension and motivation. Next, we will review a study entitled Impact of MIC in HIV-Associated Non-Hodgkin Lymphomas Treated with EPOC and Outcomes with Varinostat, conducted by Juan Ramos at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and colleagues from the AIDS Malignancy Consortium. Ramos et al. present results of a randomized controlled phase 2 trial that tested the addition of the oral histone deacetylase inhibitor virinostat to standard R-EPOC for patients with HIV-associated diffuse large B-cell lymphomas. Despite the use of combination antiretroviral therapy, patients with HIV infection have an 11-fold higher risk of highly aggressive non-Hodgkin lymphoma. When standard dose chemotherapy regimens are used in conjunction with antiretroviral drug therapy, clinical outcomes for these patients have improved, approaching that of the general population. In particular, EPOC-based chemotherapy in combination with the anti-CD20 antibody rituximab has been shown to have a superior rate of complete remission and overall survival compared to treatment with the older CHOP regimens. As a result, Epoch with or without Rituxin is the preferred regimen for HIV-positive non-Hodgkin lymphomas. However, there is considerable room for improvement. Interestingly, approximately 40% of diffuse large B-cell lymphomas and 80% of plasmablastic lymphomas are latently infected with Epstein-Barr virus and or human herpes virus type 8 and is believed that these viruses are important in causing the lymphomas. Extensive preclinical studies suggested that tumors with these latent viral infections are particularly sensitive to histone deacetylase inhibitors, possibly by disrupting EBV or HHV8 latency and enhancing chemotherapy-induced cell death. There is also evidence that HDAC inhibitors may improve HIV clearance. In this clinical study, the authors asked if varinostat could increase EPOC efficacy and or HIV clearance. The researchers randomized 90 patients with aggressive HIV non-Hodgkin lymphomas to receive dose-adjusted EPOC plus rituximab if CD20 was present, either alone or with varinostat 300 mg administered on days 1 through 5 of each cycle up to one prior cycle of systemic chemotherapy was allowed. The primary endpoint was complete response. The researchers found that epoch-based chemotherapy is broadly efficacious against these highly aggressive HIV non-Hodgkin lymphomas. However, adding the five-day course of virinostat during each chemotherapy cycle added some toxicity and failed to improve efficacy. The complete remission rates with R-EPOC versus r with Varinostat were 74% versus 68%, respectively, and the overall and event-free survival rates were similar between arms. Varinostat also did not appear to affect the level of HIV viral reservoir size, although the number of patients studied was relatively small. In a subset analysis of biomarkers, Tumors that were MIC positive did particularly poorly across all patients. BCL2 and BCL6 expression did not predict for poor outcomes in this study. Thomas Witzig from the Mayo Clinic Division of Hematology suggests in his accompanying commentary on the study, entitled "MIC matters in HIV-associated lymphoma. That future clinical studies should focus on targeting MYC, the transcription factor that provides a high proliferation stimulus and, as seen here, has a major adverse impact on clinical outcomes. Further, Witzig points out that there are important lessons to be learned from this study about clinical trials in HIV lymphomas. First, he states, workup and treatment initiation of diffuse large B-cell lymphomas on clinical trials should be considered an urgent medical need. To capture and enroll the high-risk patients, pre-phase treatment, such as in this trial, should be allowed. Rapid pathology pre-review to confirm diagnosis should be implemented and was shown feasible in the National Clinical Trials Network setting. Second, New agents selected for testing in this patient population should be relevant to MYC or BCL2. Third, given the results and the range of new agents available to test, it may be possible for these patients with HIV-associated aggressive diffuse large B-cell lymphomas to enroll in mainstream protocols. Our final two studies today look at platelet hyperactivity in COVID-19-associated pathophysiology. While the hallmarks of COVID-19 typically include an intense inflammatory response and respiratory symptoms, the hematologic manifestations of this infection have also come to the forefront, especially the severe thrombotic complications that contribute to organ failure and mortality. While platelets are not usually directly infected by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, endothelial damage, a cornerstone of COVID-19 disease, releases key platelet agonists that cause platelet activation. In addition, patients with hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and obesity, all of which are associated with baseline platelet hyperreactivity, may have particularly severe hematologic complications. COVID-19-associated coagulopathy is characterized by an elevated D-dimer, mild thrombocytopenia, and a prolongation of the activated partial thromboplastin time. In addition to these laboratory findings, patients present with increased risk of thrombosis. The first of these two studies on this topic is entitled Platelet Gene Expression and Function in COVID-19 Patients, conducted by Banu Kath Mani, Robert Campbell, and colleagues from the University of Utah Molecular Medicine Program in Salt Lake City. In this study, the researchers examined the changes in platelet gene expression and function in COVID-19 patients. Subjects for this study included 41 acutely ill patients with SARS-CoV-2 infection. RNA sequencing indicated distinct changes in the gene expression profile of circulating platelets of COVID-19 patients. Pathway analysis revealed differential gene expression changes in pathways associated with protein ubiquitination, antigen presentation, and mitochondrial dysfunction. Resting platelets from COVID-19 patients had increased P-selectin expression basally and upon activation. Circulating platelet neutrophil, monocyte, and T-cell aggregates were all significantly elevated in COVID-19 patients compared to healthy donors. Furthermore, platelets from COVID-19 patients aggregated faster and showed increased spreading on both fibrinogen and collagen. The increase in platelet activation and aggregation could partially be attributed to increased MAPK pathway activation and thromboxane generation. These findings demonstrate that SARS CoV 2 infection is associated with platelet hyperreactivity that may contribute to COVID 19 pathophysiology. The overall findings indicate that SARS CoV 2 induces robust gene expression and functional changes in platelets. The authors conclude that platelet hyperreactivity may contribute to COVID 19 pathophysiology through increased platelet platelet and platelet leukocyte interactions. In an accompanying commentary on the study, Elizabeth Batinelli from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School points out that it remains to be determined as if these platelet gene transcript differences and enhanced platelet functionality are uniquely associated with exposure to COVID-19 or if other similarly inflammatory conditions also reveal comparable changes. Comparisons of other viral illnesses associated with acute respiratory distress syndromes, she goes on to say, would be helpful in identifying the exclusivity of these platelet manifestations in COVID-19. The second study, entitled Platelet Activation and Platelet Monocyte Aggregates Formation Trigger Tissue Factor Expression in Severe COVID-19 Patients, by Eugenio Hotz at the Oswald Cruz Foundation in Brazil and colleagues. Hotz and colleagues demonstrate that increased platelet activation and platelet monocyte aggregates are found in severe COVID-19 patients in intensive care units, but not in patients presenting with mild COVID-19 syndromes. Severely ill patients demonstrated elevated fibrinogen and D-dimer. Platelet activation was associated with increased platelet expression of P-selectin and CD63, and platelets from patients with severe COVID-19 infection induce monocyte-derived tissue factor expression that is diminished by pre-treating COVID-19 patient platelets with an anti-P-selectin neutralizing antibody. Together, these findings again demonstrate the role of the platelet in COVID-19, linking changes in platelet activation and platelet-dependent monocyte tissue factor expression with disease severity and mortality. The possibility that platelet-induced increases in monocyte tissue factor expression cause unbridled coagulation and thrombosis remains to be proven. Ultimately, the authors suggest these data shed light on new pathological mechanisms involving platelet activation and platelet-dependent monocyte tissue factor expression that were associated with COVID-19 severity and mortality. In her commentary, Batinelli suggests that while these two reports clearly demonstrate differences in platelets and platelet function in patients with COVID-19, a well-defined connection between platelet hyperactivity and the coagulopathy seen in these patients has not yet been confirmed. However, she states the data from both studies set the stage for future clinical trials evaluating the efficacy of antiplatelet drugs in COVID-19-associated coagulopathy. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast.